So, we are, um, we're doing a sermon series on a sermon right now. We're doing a sermon series on the, the best sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the, on the Mount, the most perfect sermon. And uh, right now we're in the beginning part of the sermon called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And let's just read the Beatitudes to begin our time together, okay? Uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 10 says, when he, so that's Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And today we're going to be looking at the second of the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right? You ready to talk about mourning today? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, that's what we're going to talk about. But first, a couple of things about what Jesus is doing in this, in this part, the Beatitudes, or in the Sermon on the Mount at all. But you see at the beginning of each of these Beatitudes, you see this repeated phrase, right? Blessed are the blank. And this is why this section is called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes means blessings. And what is kind of interesting is that in the Old Testament, blessings are almost always connected to keeping the covenant, right? The keeping of the covenant results in blessings, whereas not keeping covenant results in a curse. And a curse doesn't mean that God's out there like, I curse you and pulling all the strings to make them poor and, you know, defeated or whatever. No, our modern idea of what a curse is is not the same as the Bible's. Our idea of a curse has something to do with like, a witch with a cauldron or a mummy or I don't, I don't know, like Bobby Brady finding a tiki god statue in Hawaii. I don't know. If you don't understand that reference, uh, I guess it means you're young, I guess is what it is. Congratulations. That, that isn't what a curse is in the Bible. A curse in the Bible is kind of used interchangeably with God's wrath. It is God saying with a grieving heart, okay, if that's what you want to do, I'm going to let you go your own way. I got to let you go, and I'll remove my presence. My name won't go with you or be with you. And because all goodness and beauty and every good gift comes from God, when you move away from God, you move away from blessing, right? You read about that in Romans 1, for example. In the types of blessings that we find in the Bible, first you have blessings in this world. So the Old Testament, almost all the blessings are focused on this world, this life, like your you're blessed with a healthy baby, you're blessed with a great job, you're blessed with good health. Uh, so Old Testament, if you walk with God, you keep the law, well, then you're going to be blessed. You're going to have prosperity, you'll have military victory, you're going to have your own, you're going to have your own sovereignty, you won't be any, under anybody's oppressive hand, your crops are going to go well, your, I don't know, your camels won't break down, I don't know. All things of this world, that's Old Testament. Primarily blessings in the present life. Now Jesus comes along and revises the Old Testament ideas of blessings and curses in two ways. First, his blessings are, a lot of times, future-oriented. 
So the New Testament is more about living a life that's oriented toward the future coming kingdom and living in kind of the long story, not the short story. So Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, live with a view towards what will be blessed later on. And he's not saying that there aren't blessings in this life, right? The New Testament's very clear about that. God's way is the best way to live now. It's blessed. It's the blessed way now. But the focus is way more in the New Testament, way more in the future in the New Testament. Because the New Testament's very realistic that we can have a lot of woes in this life, a lot of problems. But you're blessed if you keep your orientation toward the future kingdom. If this isn't your understanding, the Sermon on the Mount is, as Bertrand Russell said, a lunatic sermon. Turn the other cheek, love your enemies. I mean, that could get you killed. That's kind of lunacy if you're not reading it with an eye toward blessing in the coming kingdom or just reading it as blessing in this life. So that's the first thing. The second is, as individualistic Western Christians, we tend to read the Bible as a letter to us individually, like it's about me. But the truth is, everything written in the New Testament is written for a community of people. Everything written presupposes that people are living in intimate community. They have people involved in their life helping them live this out. Because the truth is, we can't hope to live this out in any kind of consistent way unless we're doing it in relationship with other people. You're, you're swimming upstream big time if you're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount in isolation. We, by nature, tend to conform to who's around us. It's called mimetic theory. We tend to imitate others unconsciously, if not sometimes consciously. And so we need to have people around us who also are aspiring to move in the same direction if we hope to live this out. It's about community. It's anchored in Jesus, getting its life from Jesus, having its hope in Jesus, revolving its life around Jesus. And when a community is imitating Jesus and getting their life from their relationship with Jesus, that community then begins to look more like Jesus. And that looks like the Sermon on the Mount. Stanley Howarth was, was one of my favorite thinkers. He said this, kind of summing up the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the message of the sermon cannot be separated, abstracted out from the messenger. So Jesus is the eschatological Messiah, then he has made it possible through his death and resurrection for us to live in accordance with the life envisioned in the sermon. The sermon is but the form of his life, and his life is the prism through which the sermon is refracted. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find continually, you'll see Jesus in different ways exemplifying what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. His life is an illustration of the Sermon on the Mount. So, as we as a community imitate Jesus and imitate each other as we learn to follow Jesus, as we're all following Jesus, that's the recipe for deeper relationship with him and a deeper view of the the blessings of the coming kingdom. So don't read it as kind of a bunch of ethical rules, but as road signs that you're on the right way heading toward the coming kingdom. Okay? So, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. It's a bit unexpected, right? We always kind of regard mourning as a negative thing, a bad thing, right? Here comes this guy, says, no. Those folks are blessed. Now, here's what's interesting about this. 
Scholars generally agree that in various Beatitudes that you have echoes of the Old Testament. Even though it's turning the law on its head, there are things in the Old Testament itself that anticipated that. So in Isaiah 61, Yahweh is speaking to his people who are now in exile in Assyria, and they're under the covenantal curse. In Isaiah 61, he basically says, All you who are mourning, I will comfort. This exile is not permanent. It will come to an end. I'll comfort you in the morning. These are folks who, that are suffering the curse of the covenant. God has let them go their own way, and the result has been that they are now living in oppressive circumstances. So these people are mourning these oppressive circumstances. They're mourning their own sin that put them in these circumstances. They're mourning the fact that they're away from their home. They're mourning the fact that they're estranged from the blessing of God. They're mourning the fact that they are living, living in a world at a time where God's will is it's not being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is kind of the mourning that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. So when he says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not just talking about like general depression. There's nothing virtuous about that. This is where we see again kind of a good version and a bad version of, Beati of these Beatitudes. He's talking specifically about the mourning of those who feel the pain of being exiles of a community of folks that are on the, outs, the, kind of the outsiders of the world system. Blessed are those who mourn is talking about a community that's mourning their own brokenness, and they're mourning the brokenness of the world. And they're aware of the pain of the curse. It's a community that is aware that God, God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven, and they yearn to see God fix the world and set it right. You pick up that yearning in the New Testament... In a, in a variety of ways, but the clearest, I think, is in 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul prays, Maranatha, Maranatha. This is an Aramaic for come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. There's a mourning for the world and a yearning for God to set it right. It's broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So yesterday, Kate and I attended a, a celebration of life for an awesome man who had had a beautiful family, loved his family, had a grandbaby on the way, by all intents and purposes, had a great life. But in seemingly in a moment of total confusion brought on by a mix-up of prescription medication, bought a gun and took his own life. And as I was leading prayer for this family, I just kept thinking, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This shouldn't be this way, right? And just kept thinking, like, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Set it all right. And that's the kind of mourning we're talking about here. Mourning because the world and because you yourself are broken. And it's a good mourning. It's good. And that's the kind of mourning Jesus is commending here. The mourning of an exile is people who understand the beauty of the coming kingdom. The kingdom that we are citizens of. In fact, the New Testament reveals... Uh, several times, refers to us as exiles. That's the mindset we're supposed to have. Here's what it says in 1 Peter. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. He's saying giving in to sinful desires is kind of the norm. You want to get as many of those desires fulfilled as possible. But Peter says, No. You guys are to be exiles in the world where desires are just kind of given into. You're going to be the oddballs, the aliens, 
the exiles who wage war on that. Because you realize that you're headed for a future kingdom. In Philippians 3, Paul talks this way. He says, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. To have your citizenship in a different land means that you're an alien here, right? He says, we're ambassadors here. We're foreigners here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And when you hear our citizenship is in heaven, I encourage you not to think of that like Jesus is going to come from heaven and grab us and then take us back to heaven and, and, and leave the earth. That's what's called kind of escapist theology. God's going to come and rescue us from this world. It's going to hell in a handbasket and take us away. We'll be forever in heaven and not here. From a New Testament perspective, we're not exiles because our home is far away on a different planet called heaven. No, we're exiles because our home, what is natural to us, is in the future. We're exiles now because our true home is in the future. The biblical model of salvation is not that God's going to take us away from the earth to go to heaven. The biblical model of salvation is that we partner with God to bring heaven down to earth. That's why the Lord tells us to pray the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God cares about the earth. God doesn't give up on his real estate. He likes the earth. That's why in the book of Revelations, Revelation 21, John sees this heavenly city coming down. Let's read it. Revelation 21.1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. See the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. A new heaven, a new earth, where heaven has come down to earth. The two have become one. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. That's life ever, everlasting. No more funerals. Death is done. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's this kind of mockery of death, right? Where's your victory? Death. Where's your sting? What's up now? Death. Right? I added that. That's not in the Bible. but There's no more tears because death shall be no more. He says, neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, I love this, he said, It is done. I love the feeling of being able to say about a project, like, it's done. This is Jesus saying, it's done. Come on into the reward, because it's done. It's over. The wrestle, the fight, it's over. Come in forever, 
resurrected body for life everlasting. This is our future. All of us who have called upon the name of the Lord, this is our actual future. Now, but for now, we're exiles. And because our orientation is for that future state that Jesus is preparing for the entire planet, we know how the world's supposed to be, how it will be. And it makes us aliens in this present world. Plus, what kind of intensifies that sense of alienation is that we're called to live out that future kingdom as much as possible in the present, right? So what will be true in the end times is supposed to be true of us now, correct? And that's how we put on display the reality of this coming kingdom and invite people into this coming kingdom. Here's where the world's headed, and you're invited to be a part of that. So someday we know that the world will be free of all injustice. So we strive to purge all injustice out of our life now. Someday there will be no more sin on the planet. So we try to purge sin out of our life now. Someday there will be no more pride. So we practice humility. Someday there will be no more sickness. So we, we heal the sick now. Someday the world will be free of all hatred. And so we get rid of all hatred in our life now. We are to put on display for whatever will be true as much as possible. Put it on display now. Make it true now. And that sets us in conflict with fundamental aspects of the world that we live in right now. That intensifies our sense of being aliens and exiles. So knowing what the world will someday be like and, and practicing what it will be like now, that highlights the contrast with this current fallen world. And that inevitably creates mourning in us. Mourning for the brokenness, the way that things aren't. It creates a yearning in our heart for God to come and fix this mess. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's, that's, a good, that's a good morning. It's a kind of morning of knowing that it doesn't have to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. We mourn as a form of protest. We say, Lord, fix this. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, that's a good, good morning. Someday we're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Someday we will be transformed, fully transformed, freed from the bondage of sin and the addictions that we carry around in this life. Someday we'll see him as he is. It says in 1 John 3, for we shall see him, for we shall be like him, it says. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So one other thing to, as I wrap this up. This means we have to allow the brokenness of, brokenness of the world to break our heart. We can't block out the brokenness of the world and create a little bubble of our own little oasis of happiness. That's what a lot of folks try to do. But you see Jesus coming and entering into the brokenness of the world. The opposite of good morning is blocking out the pain of the world to create a happy little bubble. Or the opposite of good morning is bad morning. And bad morning happens when you're mourning, but it's not with an orientation towards the future. It's a morning without hope. Morning without hope is, is bad morning. That's just kind of sinking into despair. That's not God's intention. If your mourning is causing you to mourn the brokenness of the world 
and yearn for it to be fixed. Yearn for this coming kingdom. That's a good morning. Kingdom morning is we use the pain and brokenness of this world to orientate us more toward the future. It creates yearning. But if you're wallowing in self-pity, there's nothing good or productive about that. Good morning presupposes hope, not despair. Good morning leads to action. If you're in bad morning, that leads to paralysis. But a good morning means we don't just wait for the blessed future to come. Right? As we said before, the thing that breaks your heart about this world is oftentimes the thing that the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something about. What breaks your heart? Put some energy toward it to see it improve. We don't just wait for this blessed future to come. We're motivated to take action to do what we can. Now, knowing that it won't be totally fixed until the Lord returns, but it should lead to action. We don't just sit on our butts and say, hey, Lord, can't wait for you to fix this. No, we're going to be partnering with God because we're supposed to be living the future now. We partner with God now to bring about that future. That's what we're doing. And it won't be totally brought about until Jesus returns, but that doesn't stop us from doing what we can now. And one last thing, and that is that we, we need to let the pain of the brokenness in, sure, but you also, you have to know your limits, right? And people differ a lot on this. In the last 20 years, we've had the capacity from technology to bring all the misery of the world into our life at any time. You can be bombarded at any time with pure, undiluted global misery. The, the news is usually about, here's a terrible thing that happened. Here's another terrible thing that happened. Here's a more terrible thing that happened. Here's a happy little story about a big cat that swims in the pool or whatever, you know? But on the whole, it's negativity. And I don't know that the human brain was meant to walk around with all of that, being aware of all that 24-7. Most people can't handle it. I can't handle it. I know for me, it creates bad morning. It sends me into cynicism and despair. So know your limits. The news channels aren't going to moderate you. The morning should be such that it reminds us that this world that we're living in is not our home. It should be there to remind us that we're, we're aliens. It should be enough to motivate you to action, but it shouldn't be so much that it overwhelms you into inaction and paralysis. Know your limits like everything else. It's about balance. Amen. Uh, I'll just finish up with a word of prayer, okay? Amen. Let's pray. So we, Lord, we just, we together mourn the hatred and envy and unforgiveness of our current fallen world. We together mourn the idolatry and greed and gossip and jealousy, and pride, lust, pettiness, violence, rebellion that characterizes our fallen world. We just grieve over the massive amount of pain that it brings. We just, Lord, we commit to being a community of people who refuse to hate, who guard against envy, who forgive others, who just together strive to stay free from these and any other behaviors and attitudes that harm people and that separate us from the Father. 
Lord, we just say that we eagerly await the day when the creation will be delivered from the bondage to decay. And nature will finally reflect the character of the Creator. Maranatha. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.